Good morning. It is always a pleasure to be with you, always good to be gathered to lift our souls to the Lord and to demonstrate the utter worthiness of Jesus. We, we do that one to another for the glory of his name and the encouragement of his saints, and we do it as a witness to the visitors among us that there really is one who was born in Bethlehem. Merry Christmas. There really is one who lived a sinless life, who died a death on the cross for the sins of his people and was raised after three days for their justification. He is the one who is seated right now in the heavenlies with his foot on the neck of every enemy. And his name is Jesus, and because he is worthy of our every breath and affection, we gather. That's what has me excited this morning. I am excited to enjoy Jesus together with you, and I'm excited to do it from the New Testament. That's not a knock on the old. It's just that the the first two times I was blessed to preach the word for you here at Woodridge, it was out of Psalms and Habakkuk, respectively. And the task in those services is to draw lines from the text that point us to the greatness and glory of Jesus, because the Old Testament exists that you might know and treasure Jesus. The New Testament exists for the exact same reason, but there aren't very long lines to draw. There's a man, the God-man, to point to. There he is. There's Jesus. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to go to the scriptures. We're going to see Jesus there. So let's do that. Let's see him. Let's hear him, believe him, and obey him, right? As we do, I invite you to open your Bibles to our text in the New Testament. We are continuing our series in the Gospel of Luke. Today's text is Luke chapter 2, verses 41 to 52. And if you'll be using one of the Bibles that's found beneath the seat in front of you, you'll find that text on page 858. Now I would ask all who are able to please stand for the reading of God's Word. Luke chapter 2, 41 to 52. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This is the inerrant word of the Lord. May it be received among us as such. You may be seated as we join together in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. It is a unique time of year, Lord. It is a time of celebration, a time of reflection, and, and first and foremost, we celebrate you. You are unique. One God, eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. 
As the creator of all things, you are worthy of our every praise and honor. And we praise you for the things that you have done, for speaking the universe into existence and upholding its every part by your sovereign power. We praise you for entering into your creation in the person of Jesus, the eternal Son, who took on flesh to make peace by the blood of his cross. And we praise you for the Spirit who applies the finished work of Christ to your people. Yes, you are unique. Your works are unmatched in glory, unlike any other. We thank you this morning for the unique blessings that you have given which allow us to enjoy you. Your word shows us the glory of Jesus. Your word describes how your people are to enjoy Jesus. Your word describes the church. We thank you this morning for Bible-believing, gospel-proclaiming, Christ-honoring local churches. We thank you for this local church, our prayer in 2019 and 2020 and on and on and on is that Christians would grow in love and appreciation for the local church. It is the ministry established by you as the means by which your son Jesus is most visibly seen and enjoyed. Lord, we, we do recognize that the people who have gathered here this morning have come together out of almost every walk imaginable. For those here in health and those here through sickness, for those in a favorable season of marriage and for those who are struggling to look with love at their spouse, for those in a focused season of singleness and those whose hearts are wearied and lonely, do what only you can this morning, Lord. Bless our worship and the preaching of your word that those who have been born again to a living hope may be refreshed by their all-satisfying Savior, Jesus. And for those who remain in love with the world, who have not turned from their sin and embraced Christ in faith, may you just give them eyes to see the sufficiency of Jesus and the necessity of his shed blood for the forgiveness of their sins. And we ask it all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. It really is a unique time of year. It is the first Sunday after Christmas and the last Sunday of 2019, last Sunday of the decade, as some have reckoned the count. And that window of time is, is really unique. It's strange. There's a tension to it. Christian, uh, Christmas is this monumental celebration, and it, it comes along with all of its fanfare, but it leaves a void that quickly fades into the rear view. And in that void, our, our sights are set on the short-term horizon. We know something new is coming, but may not know yet what that, yet what that might be. It is a, a tense time. It's kind of like a hinge, a bridge between what has come to pass and what will soon be. When we come to today's text, the account of Jesus in the temple at 12, we can think of it as a similar hinge or bridge. In the same way that we are now looking back at Christmas and ahead to what's next, this is the end of Luke 2. This is the close of the Christmas chapter. And though we know that the Christian never moves on from the glory of the incarnation, we will preach the glory of Christ as the God-man every chance we get. In the narrative progression of Luke's gospel, today's text has us looking back with wonder at all that was said about who Jesus would grow up to be with sight set forward as we now see him growing up to be it. It's a beautiful window between the birth of Christ and his public adult ministry, which is the timeline we'll be taken to next week when we pick up Luke chapter 3. But for now, today, 
We have Jesus as he's described in this text, and we will be blessed to consider it. For my own sake and for yours, I want to outline that blessing for us this morning. First, I want to make sure that we are familiar with the details of the account. We're going to work through the text and get acquainted with the facts. After that, we're going to take a step back and ponder the reason why an account like this makes its way into a gospel of Jesus Christ, into a narrative telling of the life of our Lord. And thirdly, I want to apply the truth of points one and two so that your 2020 as a believer in Jesus, our 2020 as a local church is aimed at maximum joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's get to it. Picking up at verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. As Pastor Luke mentioned last week, Jesus was blessed with a faithful, God-fearing, law-abiding dad and mom. According to Deuteronomy chapter 16, there were three major feasts that God's people were to celebrate. The Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Booths, and Passover, which was followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And as we can see from verse 41, by the time of Jesus, it was common to refer to that span of days as the Feast of the Passover. It was a span of seven to eight days, and and that fact actually adds a little more fuel to our appreciation of Joseph and Mary's godliness. Verse 43 indicates that the family worshipped the entire length of the feast. So as Jesus' earthly father, not only was Joseph a man who faithfully brought his family to Jerusalem on an annual basis, but they also weren't cutting out early. They didn't make an early exit to beat the traffic back to Nazareth. No, Joseph led his family in true worship of the one true God. This is a good time to highlight Joseph, because apart from the genealogy of Jesus that we're going to come to in chapter 3, this is the last that we see of him in the Gospel of Luke. And it's good to give credit where credit is due. And by all accounts, Joseph was a good man who served his family well by leading them in the worship of the one true God. Joseph's faithfulness reminds me of a quote I came across recently from John Piper. Pastor Piper writes, The greatest stumbling block for a child in worship is a parent who doesn't. He obviously uses the term parent here, referring to both dad and mom, but I think it is a particularly poignant reflection when aimed more narrowly at fathers. The greatest stumbling block for a child in worship is a father who doesn't. Word for the dads. Dads, uh, your life tells a story, and your kids are the front row spectators to that story. They know the difference between a dad who will not be deterred from gathering with God's people to worship the one who has purchased his soul and a dad who likes church but really lives to get home, crack a beer, and watch some football. Your life will tell a story. And to to just be real and honest about it, you don't know when the end scene is coming. I know it's not necessarily comfortable to talk about that, but I don't think we talk about it enough. From all that we can gather, Joseph's time was up sometime after the events in today's text, perhaps shortly thereafter. And I think that's something powerful for us to reflect on, both for those who are dads and those who aren't. There is a difference between men who go to church to make themselves feel better about the things that they'd rather be doing, and men who make the worship of Jesus their chief end and aim. 
The difference is one results in a funeral testimony that leaves behind a wake of question marks, and the other leaves behind a wake of kids and grandkids who know the supremacy of Jesus. Verse 43, when the feast was ended and they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. If we were to give a one-word reaction to these verses, I think most of us would be comfortable going with something like, How? How does it happen that a family leaves town unaware that their 12-year-old is unaccounted for? That's not a bad question. Uh, There's two things for us to keep in mind, though, that I think shed some light on this account and dispel a little bit of that discomfort that we're feeling about what happened. First, as Joseph, Mary, and Jesus traveled from Nazareth to Jerusalem and back again, something they did every year, they did not travel as a solitary family unit. As we saw earlier, Passover was one of the primary feasts for God's people to celebrate, so Joseph and Mary weren't making the trip alone. Family members, friends, Nazareth neighbors would have all been heading south to Jerusalem, and so they traveled together as a a caravan of sorts. And even within this caravan, it's not as if each individual family member would have been tied to the hip of another. Travel throughout the day would have been a little more loosely organized than we might imagine. They mingled and socialized in various ways throughout the course of the day. And then it was at night when they gathered back up into their respective family units. And that's why the text says, supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. And at the end of the day's journey is when they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. So this method of caravan travel is item number one that helps shed some light on these verses for us. Item number two is something that I I just found super interesting and endearing in one of the commentaries that I was reading on this text. It was this comment. Jesus was never not where he was supposed to be. Saying that in the positive, Jesus was always where it was good, right, and prudent for him to be. Imagine this as a parent. Imagine raising a child to the age of 12, and part of that experience is that he's never been anywhere except where he's supposed to be. Word comes around that a group of youths is saying some vile things, harassing people in the town square. Joseph and Mary look around to see if Jesus is in the house, and even if Jesus isn't in the house, they know where he isn't. He is not with those kids in the city square because not Jesus' style. Jesus is always where it is good, right, and prudent for him to be. So it is a bit more understandable for Joseph and Mary to assume that Jesus would have been among the caravan when it was time to leave town. As we continue in the text, however, we will see that at this specific point in Jesus' life, in accordance with who he is, not ultimately as the son of Joseph, but as the son of God, that there is someplace better, someplace more prudent for him to be at this moment than in the caravan back to Nazareth. Verse 46. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. He said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. 
Because Jesus was a 12-year-old boy, unlike any other 12-year-old boy that has ever walked the face of this planet, the temple was where he needed to be. In his own words, I must be in my father's house. Two things about the temple. For God's old covenant people, it was the specific location where God's presence uniquely dwelt among them. And it's also where the uniquely sanctified worship of the one true God took place, both in teaching and in song. Uniquely set apart, uniquely defined. So for Jesus, even at the age of 12, there is this recognition that for the ministerial mission that has been given to him as eternal God in human flesh, he needs to be where his Father is. In order for him to accomplish all that Gabriel, all that Simeon, all that the Old Testament prophet said he would do, he needs to be where the word of God is served to God's people. He needs to be where the praises of God are proclaimed. This is the same Jesus who at the beginning of his public ministry will affirm this very thing in the midst of grueling temptation, quoting Deuteronomy and saying, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. He lived that at age 30, just as he lived it at age 12, because Jesus of Nazareth was never anything less than God himself in human flesh. The second person of the triune Godhead, he was not just a simple man who received an anointing of divinity upon his baptism. At age 12, he knew who he was, and he knew what he must be about to be the author and perfecter of a faith that would wed his people to their bridegroom and confer upon them every blessing he would purchase with his blood. Brothers and sisters, there is so much more to say about that. And I will once we've made our way entirely through the text. Verse 51. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Having been where he needed to be in the time frame following Passover, it was now good, right, and prudent for Jesus to return with Joseph and Mary to Nazareth. The text says he lived as a boy submissive to his earthly father and mother, and all the while he grew in wisdom, in stature, and in favor with God and man. So even though we just got done seeing that the boy Jesus was uniquely aware of who he was, he knew God as his father and himself as the son of God incarnate, he was submissive to Joseph and Mary. Why? Is it because Joseph and Mary were parenting him perfectly? That's not the case. It's because obedience to parents is right and good, and Jesus does what is right and good. I'm going to go out on a limb and say there may be some kids in the service today that have a hard time being obedient and submissive to their parents. Just a hunch. Sometimes that's expressed in some obviously sinful ways that I think they would even admit to. Thoughts like, I will not be told what to do. I will act as my own authority. Other times, there is a seemingly, seemingly, kind of but not really at all, valid line of thinking that is used by children to justify an act of disobedience. It might sound something like, what's being asked of me is unfair. It's unjust. If mom and dad could see and understand things the way that I see them, then there's no way they'd be asking me to do that. 
they don't have the perspective to parent me well in this situation. So in what world does it make sense for me to submit to imperfect parenting? Answer, in the world of following Jesus. If there is anyone who could have ever lost the seemingly on those valid lines of thinking, it was Jesus. He was the sinless son of God in human flesh, but he did not make those arguments against Joseph and Mary. He obeyed them even though they were imperfect because obedience to parents, even imperfect parents, is right and good, and Jesus does what is right and good. Kids, if you find yourself feeling drawn to those arguments about how senseless it might seem to obey imperfect parenting, please allow me to let you know what anyone over the age of 25 would tell you if you had the ears to hear it. You are being betrayed by you. When you set up a standard for what you will or will not obey that is in direct opposition to what Christ here has modeled and God has defined in his word, you have convinced yourself of something that will rob you of joy in Jesus of glory. What I'm about to say next isn't absolutely true because evil exists in this world and people are capable of hurting other people in profound ways. But, and this is still for the kids, though it applies to all of us as well, throughout the course of your life, no one will be more dishonest to you than you will be to you. No one will cause your heart pain like you will cause your heart pain. It will come by way of your own hands when you disregard the good authority that God has placed in your life, whether it be parents or the Holy Scriptures, and you replace it with your own. As you do so, you walk through waters of unnecessary hurt because you are betraying you. Jesus was a boy who did what was right and good as he lived under the structures of authority that were appropriately in place given the stage of life that he was in. Saying it that way is helpful for us as we seek to understand the last verse of this passage, verse 52. Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Now, Wisdom is a fascinating concept in the pages of Scripture. It makes us think of Proverbs, part of the Old Testament wisdom literature. And, and what we're getting with the Proverbs and other wisdom scriptures is a description, a revelation of functional righteousness. It's functional in that it suggests a course of action or an attitude within a particular situation or circumstance. And it's righteous because... Those actions and attitudes image the perfect character of God. Righteousness is a very important part of this discussion because the world has wisdom that it will try to sell you as functional, but is far from righteous. The world wants you to believe that it is wise for a man and a woman to live together and enjoy intimacy with one another prior to marriage so that they can make sure they'll be compatible in those capacities afterwards. It's rubbish. 
Here's what is functionally righteous. It is functionally righteous for a man and a woman to image the perfect character of God by reserving the greatest depths of love and intimacy within a a covenant commitment, life within the covenant commitment of marriage. That's just an example, but as we take it back to looking at our passage and seeing Jesus, we see that even as a youngin, he was someone who increased in wisdom, who grew in functional righteousness. And as we consider this, it may be tempting to think about the increase of wisdom as if you were starting with an empty tank. There's an empty tank called functional righteousness. It gradually gets filled until someday, somehow, full functional righteousness is obtained. It may be tempting to think away that way, but we're not going to. We are throwing that analogy out because to do so would be to suggest that in his younger years, Jesus was somehow deficient in righteousness. And may that never be said. So rather than an empty tank, we would be well served to consider Jesus' growth and wisdom like the construction of a skyscraper. There is an expression of functional righteousness that accords with being a five-year-old. There is a different expression of functional righteousness that accords with being a a 10-year-old, a 20-year-old, a child who is still under their parents' roof, a man or woman who has moved out from under their parents' roof, a single person, a married person. I think you see that. Because wisdom is functional righteousness, a proper expression of it coincides with the functional categories that any human being is operating in at a various stage of their life. And when it comes to Jesus, each stage, layer, and story of his life was perfect and pure. We can say he grew in wisdom because when he was done expressing complete righteousness through one stage of life, he went to the next and began to express complete righteousness in that one as he grew in age and stature. That brings us to the end of the text. At this point, allow me to revisit the outline I offered at the outset of the sermon. Step one was working through the text, getting acquainted with the details. Check. Step two is to take a step back and ask ourselves why an account like this makes it into Luke's gospel. And step three is some soul-satisfying application for the new year. So, why does the account of Jesus in the temple at 12 make it into a gospel of the man's life? Why does any account of anything Jesus did outside of Good Friday and Easter make its way into your Bible? This is going to sound overly simple, but I promise you it's profound. This account is in your Bible so that you might know Jesus. Luke 3, 4, 5, and 6 are in your Bibles that you might know Jesus. Matthew 20, Mark 8 are in your Bibles that you might know Jesus. And not just in a way that prepares you to work a few of his good teachings into your life, but rather that you would know Jesus as the Lord of your salvation. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. We are given the accounts of Jesus because when we see Jesus, we see the gospel. Even at 12, even at 12, because every step of righteousness we see Jesus taking leading up to the cross is a glorious foretaste of what we receive after it. We receive the righteousness of Christ by faith. The Christian gospel is this, my friends. You and I are wicked rebels against a holy God. 
but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Alive together with Jesus. Alive with him who died, having gone to the cross as a sacrifice for the sins of his people. Alive with him who rose victorious because the price of his people's souls had been paid. Alive with him who offers every blessing of his righteous life and sin-atoning death to those who would abandon their sin and embrace him as Lord. When we see Jesus, we see the gospel because we are seeing the life and death of the substitute we so desperately need. We see the beauty of that simple gospel summary. What is the good news? Jesus in my place. So what do we do with this? Well, the news just keeps getting better for those who have bowed their knee to Jesus, uh, not in a health, wealth, and prosperity kind of way, but in this way. When we see Jesus, we see the gospel, not only in our justification, which is what we just discussed, being declared righteous before God because of the life and death of Jesus, but we see it in our sanctification as well. That is the work of God, the ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit where he takes his people, grabs them by the heart, and trains and matures them to live lives that look more and more and more like the life of Jesus. This is the fullness of the gospel we enjoy when we look at Jesus. He is the eternal righteousness of his people, and in time for your life now, he is the image into whom God's Spirit is gracious to mold and shape and blossom. I remember after being saved by God in my early 20s, being enamored with the doctrine of sanctification. And that's not to say anything negative about justification, love justification. Uh, I agree with, with Martin Luther that justification by faith alone is the article on which the church stands or falls. Yes and amen to that. But to understand my love and appreciation for sanctification, I think it, it helps to understand where I was coming from. I grew up as an unsaved person in a church that emphasized justification very well and all the time. And that's not bad. That's not bad. I'm not saying that that's bad in any way. But when they would talk about sanctification, there would be less of an emphasis on that. There would be less of an explanation of that. And even the explanations that were offered were offered as it pertains to justification. They would talk about good deeds that the scriptures have for us to do. And the, the way that it would be talked about and explained is that these good deeds are no longer things we have to do to be justified with God, but they're things that we get to do and want to do. And for a 15-year-old unsaved boy, I was like, when is that time coming? I get and understood, even at that time as an unsaved person, that God is faithful to his people by declaring them righteous in his eternal throne room. And that that is a beautiful gift that is awaiting for them, depending on your age in life, maybe 80 years from now. So you can imagine my heart soaring when I heard the true, full, biblical gospel. Yes, justification. Yes and amen to the fact that God has been faithful to his people in eternity by declaring them righteous before his eternal throne room. But yes and amen to the fact that God is faithful to his people in time by the ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit, whereby when he 
prompts his people to look at Jesus, he is showing them the shape and the image of righteousness that he is continuing to shape and mold and transform them into. I knew that there was grace for eternity, but I did not know that God's grace and mercy for me was for today, for tomorrow, for enjoying him by seeing Jesus my whole life through. So when we see Jesus, we see the gospel in beautiful ways, not only in our justification, but in our sanctification as well. And I don't know about you, but if this beautiful truth is what's on the menu, I need to see Jesus. I need to be where the word of Christ is taught and proclaimed. I need to be where the glory of Christ is lifted in song and where the people of Christ bear witness to the greatness of his name. I need the ministry of the local church. Am I saying that the local church is the only avenue by which Jesus is seen and enjoyed? No, I'm not saying that. Am I saying that it is the primary avenue described by God in the pages of Scripture for his people to see and to savor his son Jesus? Yes, I am. When you preach near New Year's, there's a lot of cliche advice that's easy to give. Things like, make sure you're in the Word every day. Commit, no, really commit to more consistent prayer time with the Lord. And cliche or not, those things are right and good. Do them. And in the midst of doing them, consider this additional encouragement. This is primarily going to be for my Woodridge brothers and sisters. Be aware and be ready. My prayer is that you would be aware of what this local church does, that you might see Jesus. When Drew and Jen are putting together elements of worship, it's with the mind of how best can we show them Jesus. When Luke or Matt or John sits down to write a sermon, it is only ever to show you Jesus. When Vicki and Allison and Herman and June do all the things that they do, it's that your kids might know and treasure Jesus. Sometimes it freaks me out how much Rich and Julie love people. They come alongside people and love them and open their lives to them so that they might show them Jesus. Jack and Jim thankful for those brothers because all of the things, the thousands of things that they are doing is so that we have a place to come and see Jesus. So let's be prepared. Let's, let's be aware of that and be prepared. We are coming back to this place week in and week out to see Jesus. It's going to happen in the Gospel of Luke. Next week, the week after, any time these doors are opened by the grace of God, you will find us feasting in sermon and song on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. We will be here seeing Jesus, the people of God, made alive together with Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, you are so gracious to us. Not only did you plan the gospel from the foundation of the world, not only did you accomplish it perfectly in your son Jesus, but you have given us the means by which we can know and enjoy it. We thank you for the local church. I thank you for this local church. 
I thank you for the ministry that it has given to me, the ministry that it has encouraged me with. And I know that there are so many people in this room that have a similar reason to be thankful this morning. We thank you for the men and the women that you have gathered into this special local body to love one another and to show them Jesus. Not with gimmicks or nonsense, but with the word and prayer and worship. So as we turn our hearts back to feasting upon you in song, may you soften our hearts to be as worshipful as the people of God should be. And as we look forward to 2020 and seeing Jesus more and more and more as a group of brothers and sisters, we just ask that you give us soft hearts to see what is going on here and to be able to reach out and enjoy it with one another. We ask all these things in the name above all names, in the name of your son, Jesus.